theyeshiva.net. There is a famous yet enigmatic expression of our sages, of Chachamenu Zechreinam Levracha, of our rabbis, concerning marriage. The Gemara says, the beginning of Talmud Tractate, page 2a. Okay, it's going to be a wonderful class, saturated with blessings, noise, passion, excitement, and enthusiasm. I don't know if you'll be able to hear anything, but so what? The main thing, the main thing in life is just to show up. Everything after that is extra credit. If you could just show up to life, you're good. The advantages of an outdoor class, right? Let's choose to see the rain as divine harmony to the presentation. Can that work for you? Okay. See that? When you realize that everybody's harmonizing with you, there's no resistance. So the Gemara says, Koshim Zivugim Kikriya Siamsov. That to match couples together is as difficult as the splitting of the sea. Referring, of course, to the stupendous event in Parshas B'Shalach where the Jewish people encounter a sea in front of them, the Egyptians behind them, and in that great moment in Jewish history, the water splits and they pass through the water in dry land. So Chazal say to put together couples is kosher, is difficult, kikriyas yamsuf, like the splitting of the sea. And I want to ask you today, why this metaphor from all metaphors? That the rabbis believe that marriages can be difficult, relationships can be challenging, putting couples together is not a simple task. We understand. But from all of the difficult things that happen in Torah, from all of the miracles, the supernatural events that Jews experience, there are many. They could have said it's like the descending of the manna from heaven. You read the Sama. They could have said it's like the ten plagues. Okay, that wouldn't sound so good. They could have said it was like the clouds of glory. It was like the Be'era, like the well of... I mean, there's many, many miracles happened there constantly. They chose from everything, Kikriyas Yamsuf. And that wasn't the only difficult thing. Sometimes they say things are as difficult, Kishvira Saluchas, like breaking of the tablets. What did they mean? Why did they even need a mushal of Kriyas Yamsuf? They could say it's very difficult. Kikriyas Yamsuf. They say it about one more thing. Gemara says in Maseches Psachim that Kashim is a noisav shel adam kikriyas yamsof. Parnasa livelihood 
the sustenance of a person is also as difficult as Kriya Siyamsuf. To figure out exactly where and how you're going to get your sustenance is as difficult as splitting of the sea. To the extent that the Gemara says that there are three things that nobody knows. Nobody knows what another person is thinking. Even if you think you know what I'm thinking, you don't know what I'm thinking. Number two, nobody knows from where their livelihood is going to come. People who went to college, university for 12 years to excel in a particular career, and then somehow they're completely doing something else. And the next thing is, Malchus Beis David, Masai Tachzeh, when Mashiach is going to come. Here again, the Gemara chooses the metaphor of Kriyas Yamsuf, the splitting of the sea, to describe the difficulty of the challenges of earning a livelihood. Why Kriyas Yamsuf from everything? Another interesting thing. When the Gemara says that marriage is as difficult as Kriyas Yamsuf, as the splitting of the sea, the Talmud asks a question. And that is, it's known that already 40 days before a child is born, there's a baskel, a heavenly voice that goes out and says, Bas Ploini Leploini. The daughter of Mr. Finkelstein is going to marry the son of Mr. Schwartz. Well, the daughter of Mrs. Finkelstein is going to marry the daughter of Mrs. Schwartz. So that means it was already preordained, what we call in Yiddish Bashert, soulmate. What's so difficult as Kriya Siyamasov? You already announced. So the Gemara answers, Kan Bezivuk Rishan, Kan Bezivuk Sheni. There's a difference between which marriage? A first marriage, there's already a baskel, a voice, 40 days before the baby is born. Bas Ploinis Leploini. That's Zivuk Rishan. Zivuk Sheni, if it's a second marriage, either because of a death, God forbid, or because of a divorce, whatever the circumstances are that cause a second marriage, that allow for a second marriage, this is Kikriyas Yamsuf. This is like splitting of the sea, because here, as Rashi says, the match is not based on mazel, it's based on behavior, it's based on maizim, it's based on their deeds. Which would seem very interesting, but there's a problem here because, as many Svarim point out in Medrash, when it says that marriages are as difficult as Kriyas Yamsov, it indicates that it's all marriages, even first marriages, Zivugrishan. So we have here somewhat of a contradiction, actually, not somewhat, a blatant contradiction. Are first marriages also like Kriyas Yamsov? Or only second marriages are as Kriyas Yamsov? Today, statistically, we know that there are unique challenges in a second marriage that don't exist in a first marriage. Like there are challenges in a first marriage. But a second marriage, it's already people have been around the block. They're older, they're experienced. First marriages often happen when people are young, less mature, less developed. They don't even know what they're going into before, you know, uh, before the spaghetti hits the fan. And... uh, and everything else that uh, comes crashing down or, or crashing up. Somebody once said, he said, it's easier to do a merger between two startup companies than it is to do a merger between two long-standing developed companies. You have to bring together, that's the value of marrying young, to bring together AOL and Time Warner, 
It's already two companies, have a lot of experience. Once people are older, that's already two developed companies. Everybody got their shtick, their idiosyncrasies. You take two babies, you put them in a house and you say, figure it out. It can have some disadvantages, especially if the parents don't know what they're doing and are busy thinking about themselves rather than their kids. But there's also an upside because uh, young people figure things out together and they're more flexible and pliable. That's the word. They're more pliable. The elasticity works more efficiently when you're young, psychologically as well. But in the Medrash, it says it about all marriages, even Zivugrishan, even first marriages. Okay, let's change the subject. There's a Pasuk in Tehillim, in the Halal. The sea saw and it fled. What did the sea see? C as an S E A, C as an S E E. What did the sea see? What did it observe? My raw, Hayom raw. The sea saw and it fled. What did it see? Answers the Medrash, shal Yosef raw. It saw the casket of Yosef. And the Medrash explains when the Jewish people came to the Red Sea and God wanted the sea to split, He told Moshe, lift up your stick and stretch out your arm, your hand on the sea and let it split. The Yam said, no way. Remember for a sea to split, what would that be called? Suicide. Right? If you're a sea, for you to split and become dry land, what do you call that? Yeah, destroying yourself. This is who you are. This is Mamash who you are. It's not just, it's not just a, it's a cosmetic cosmetic change, which can also be quite dramatic. This is through and through a transformation. The sea said, I'm not splitting, why should I split? And no negotiations helped until it saw the casket of Yosef. When it saw Yosef's casket, it ran, and it, thank God it ran in two directions, so the sea split. And the Medrash says, why? Because by Yosef it says, Vayonos he also fled. When Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, incessantly pleading with him to be with her, and Yosef kept on refusing, he refused, and then that one fateful day in Parshas Vayeshev when nobody is home, and she seizes the opportunity, and she pressures Yosef to be with her, and what does Yosef do? He flees outwards, outside, but his cloak she holds on to, and it rips. It's also Kriya. It rips, it tears, and she holds on to part of it. So his cloak also tears into two as he runs out. When the sea saw the casket of Yosef, the sea did the same thing. Vayonos. Hayom ra, vayonos. The same word that's used. Now this seems, it's a very interesting message, but it seems a little strange. Why from all Jews, Yosef, Moshe, was no small person. Aaron was no small person. Their children were no small people. You had here 
Millions of Jews. Nobody can affect the sea split. Besides, the coffin of Yosef. Remember, Yosef wasn't alive already for hundreds of years. Yosef died in Egypt years before the Golos. And Moshe took out, because Yosef made an oath. That one day when you get out of this country, take my bones with you. So now Moshe takes his bones and he carries them for 40 years throughout the desert until they're going to go into the Holy Land and they're going to inter Yosef's holy body in the city of Shechem, where it still remains till this very day, known as Kaver Yosef. And it's a very, very uh, loaded site. They destroyed the, the tombstone, they destroyed the, the region, they, they, you can't destroy uh, what's under the ground, they couldn't destroy, but yes, it's, been, it's constantly, it's under siege, because it's Shechem, it's Nablus, it's one of the most uh, dangerous zones in the area. I said last night, Israel is a great country, it's just in a pretty bad neighborhood. <laughs> one of the bad neighborhoods is Shechem, right? So that's where Yosef was placed. Nobody can affect the split of the sea. Only the Oren, the coffin of Yosef. Why? But there's even another, there's even a deeper question. The Gemara tells us, Rabbi Yochanan teaches us, the Gemara, actually the Medrash, Medrash Rabbah Bereshis, Parashah that when Hashem created the world, and He created on the second day, He created the heaven that split the water. The first day there was water enveloping the earth. Ruach HaLekimur HaChefes Al Second day, he creates a firmament separating the higher water from the lower water. The third day, he tells the water to retreat into various regions so that dry land can emerge. And that's when oceans, lakes, canals, streams, creeks, wellsprings are all created and dry land emerges and we have the planet somewhat as we know it. And uh, Rabbi Yochanan tells us that at that moment when God was creating the Red Sea, the Yamsuf and the seas, he made a condition. And he said, I'll create you, but there's a condition. There's a stipulation in the contract. You want to be created? Yes. The stipulation is that one day, the Jewish people are going to come here. They're going to come to the Yamsuf. You have to split. If you accept this condition, you're in. If not, let's go back to the drawing board. <laughs> I'm not creating you. No. So the Yamsuf said, fine. That's Pshat that says in the Pasuk, Vayoshov Hayom Le'esonoi. The Yam returned back to Eisonai, which can also, with a reconfiguration of letters, could read Litnoi. It fulfilled its condition. What condition? The condition that it would split. So one second. Everybody knows when you sign a contract, you have to keep it. The Yamsuf made a condition with Hashem, it's going to split. Suddenly it says, no, I'm not splitting. And it has to see the coffin of Yosef. What do you mean? You made a deal. Let's say Yosef wasn't there. Let's say there was no coffin of Yosef. The indication of the Medrash is the Yam wouldn't split. What do you mean? You made a deal with your Yerubayim How could you go back? Mainly human beings sometimes retract from deals and it's unethical. But what do we, we explain this with the Yamsuf? So I'm going to share with you a perspective. The perspective originates in a teaching 
of Reb Aaron of Karlin, Reb Aaron Hagadol, as he's known, the great Reb Aaron of Karlin, who was one of the great students of the Magad of Mizrich, passed away at a very young age, in his young 30s, in the 1770s, 1772 on Pesach. He was one of the great, great fire, fiery masters, Hasidic masters of the generation. He didn't have a child who succeeded him, but he had a student who succeeded him because his child was a little orphan. So he had a student who succeeded him, Reb Shloima of Karlin. And so the Karlin dynasty uh, was created and continues to this very day. Stalin, Karlin. The Baron HaGadol of Karlin was a fireball of inspiration. If you go to a Karlin shtibul or shul, the whole davening is davened with koilas mamish on top of their lungs. They scream the whole davening. Tilshman Esra. Besides On top of their lungs, they scream a whole davening. It's, it's quite a sight, quite a phenomenon. Baron of Karlin was a Kaddishal, he was a very holy man, and he gives an interpretation about this. The nucleus of what he says, I'm going to share, but I'm also going to elaborate on a few other points that tie into this. And for this, we have to understand the following introduction. This introduction comes from the Alter Rebbe from the Balatanya and Terror. What's the difference between the sea and dry land? What's the difference? The Gemara says in Chulun Kol Mashiach Bayam Yesh Bayabasha Kol Mashiach Bayabasha Yesh Bayam. Just as dry land is populated by an entire world and it's teeming with life and diversity, the sea as well. Under the water, there's a whole world. Besides the world of fish, minerals. And what grows under the water, it's a universe under the water, although we don't see it. But the distinction between dry land and the sea is not if there's things going on. It's if we can observe it. When I come to an ocean, all I see is a bed of water. I may see a few fish. When dry land, we right away see everything. Everything is seen. But it goes one step deeper. In dry land, we immediately see diversity. I'm looking at this room and we see there's one person sitting in this chair, another person sitting in this chair, a person standing at this lectern, a person sitting in this chair. Here there's a beam, here there's a chandelier, here there's a camera, here there's a speaker, here there's a bird. You immediately see distinctions, differentiation. Wherever you go, you walk outside. There's a port, especially in this place. But wherever you go outside, right away you see differentiation. Everything has its place. Everything has its identity. A plant, a flower, a tree, a car, a worm, a turtle, a deer, a dog, etc. In the sea, when I come to the sea, when I come to the yam, what do I see? I see oneness. Kamayim, what does the Pasuk say in Yeshaya? Kamayim layam echasim. I just see the water. And the water essentially unites everything that's under it. All I could see is... One cover, the cover of the water, what we call the water bed, that eclipses all of the creatures that are under it. What does this represent then? It represents two different states of consciousness. The state of consciousness of Yabasha is a state of consciousness of differentiation and fragmentation. The state of consciousness of the sea 
is a state of consciousness, of cohesiveness, of harmony and of unity. Say from Rav Nachman of Breslev, he said, what's the difference between speaking and singing? What's the difference? If I'm giving a speech, in the middle of my talking, it starts raining. Or in the middle of my talk, in other words, in the middle of my talking, God starts talking. So the right thing to do is for me to be quiet. But if I'm in the middle of talking and you start talking, we call it in English, interruption. But what happens if I'm singing, and in the middle of my singing, somebody starts singing? We don't call it interruption, we call it harmony. So there are people who live life by speaking, and there are people who live life by singing. And the objective of life is to stop talking and start singing. Because people are talking, everybody is always interrupting them. And people who are singing, everybody is always harmonizing with them. I always tell the husbands, when you come home, I'll tell it to you also, you come home at night, don't talk. You walk into the house, no talking. Because if you start talking, somebody will interrupt you. You said you'll be here two hours ago. That's if you talk. If you sing, you said you'll be here two hours ago. I know, but I'm here. It's all good. It's harmony. Even disagreements are just part of the harmony. It's a good idea. Try it out. Turn it into a musical. You turn it into a musical, it's a musical. It's not a fight anymore. Of course, musicals have debate, but it's part of the music. But I would just add to Reb Nachman, I would say, some people, even when they sing, they're talking. And some people, even when they talk, they're singing. Nobody ever interrupts them. People always harmonize with them. It's a different way of viewing the world. It's a different way of carrying yourself. Are people interrupting me or are people harmonizing with me? And you choose which path you want. Either the path of Dibur or the path of Nagina. It says in Yerushalmi, brought in Rabbeinu Yoyna, Bekushi Hitiru Ladabe Divri the rabbis reluctantly allowed people to speak Torah on Shabbos. Can you imagine the whole Dvar Torah institution? What would happen to it? It was almost outlawed. Would have been such a bad idea. A lot of good paper could be spared. Ask the Balatanya, really? What are you supposed to do a whole Shabbos? Business, you're not supposed to talk about. Vedabedavar. Torah, the Gemara says, they reluctantly allowed to speak Torah. What are you supposed to do a whole Shabbos? He says, you're really supposed to sing. A whole Shabbos is really made for singing. They just realized that it's very hard to maintain that state of being. So they allowed to speak Divya Torah to bring down the music into vessels, into Caleb. That's why, what did the Jews do after the splitting of the sea? They start singing. Az Words are divisive. Music creates cohesion. It, you can even see it practically. To understand what you're saying, I have to know your language. If you're speaking Russian, I don't understand Russian, I don't understand. You're speaking Yiddish, I have to understand Yiddish. You're speaking French or Italian, I have to understand the language. If I don't know English, I can't understand. But when somebody sings, 
It's a universal language. You could be Russian, you could be Japanese, you could be French, you could even be Israeli and understand. Music, everybody understands. Why? Because it touches a space in the soul where there's no divisiveness between people. It's the yam, it's not the dry land. The yam is a consciousness where we notice and recognize the achdus, the oneness of all of creation since it comes from one source. Hashem echad, which is a cohesive, integrated, and oneness, it's a source of oneness, so therefore there is ultimately oneness in all of existence. And one could put on the glasses and look at existence that way, and all they can see is the divine energy that saturates every individual created being, and therefore there's an achtos that defines it all. And that touches a different space in perspective, and it generates music rather than words. Because words, as the Alter Rebbe said, words are the pen of the mind, and music is the pen of the soul. Words are the quill of the mind, and music is the quill of the soul. And that's why music has such a deep relationship to spiritual awareness. People who have a skill, have a talent, have a sensitivity to music, it's something to cherish very deeply. Never to stifle, never to crush, and never to destroy. Sometimes there are children who are very, very brilliant in music, and some of our genius pedagogues make sure to crush it and to explain to them what a waste of time it is. And really, you're killing a certain part of their soul. doesn't mean the only thing they should be doing all day is playing piano. But it does mean that it's a very important part of their neshama. And it should not be mocked and certainly not uh, obliterated or stifled or repressed. On the contrary, it takes people to different places. When there is singing, people open up in a way that they can't open up when they're speaking. Because speaking by definition creates defenses because it's based in a world of differentiation. And music comes from a world of oneness. So people could melt easier. They, the barriers between humans melt much more in an ambiance of song and of music. The Zayar says there are two types of neshamas. There are neshamas that are called nuneyama, neshamas that are called the fish of the sea. And then there are neshamas that are called neshamas of Yabash and neshamas of Dryland. And it says when Mashiach comes, there's going to be a famous war, you remember between who? Between the Leviathan and the Shoir Habar. Between the Leviathan fish and the wild untamed ox. And they're going to kill each other. And how are they going to kill each other? The Leviathan is going to stab the untamed bull with its fins. And the bull is going to stab the Leviathan with its horns. And the Gemara asks a question, the Medrash asks a question, how can the Tzaddikim? You know the song, right? Vasvetman Essen by the Groysa Sudala. How can you eat this food? It's not kosher shchita. A fish is not a problem. But a bull, you have to shecht. You shecht it with the fins. Stabbing of the fins of a Leviathan, it's not a shchita. And the Medrash says in Parsha Shmini, the Possek says, Chidush there's going to be a Chidush in Torah that it's going to be kosher. You have to understand what this means. How 
had explained it halachically, it's not for this shear. But what is the meaning of this? So in the Kutatari explains that there's two types of souls. There's a soul, it's a metaphor. There's a soul that's a Leviathan soul. And there's a soul that's a Sher Habar, an ox. I'm going to describe the two souls. If it matches you, please raise your hand. I don't need you to raise your hand to me. I need you to raise your hand to yourself. So you should be able to identify self-awareness. There are souls that are Sher Habars. Wild bulls, wild oxes. And then there are Sher that are Leviathan. Leviathan is the king of the ocean. It's two different types of souls. There's a soul that is rooted in the world of unity. And there's a soul that's rooted in the world of differentiation. One simple way of describing it is, you remember in the car when people used to listen to the radio? Yeah? Anybody still does that? Yeah? Okay, because whoever I go, whenever I go in the car, they're always listening to my classes. I don't know if they still listen to the radio. I'm the last Mohican who still listens to the radio because I don't like hearing myself. It's hard enough being myself. I don't have to listen to myself also in the car. So I still put on the radio. I'm from the few uh, leftovers, from the few shares. I still put on the radio. Okay? So I say always there's two types of souls. There are AM souls and FM souls. You know the difference between AM and FM? It's just one button, but it's a different world. In AM, the world is about to come to an end within the next 20 minutes. You give me 22 minutes and I'll give you the world. And what a world I'm going to give you. A world in which the unpredictable Trump may unleash, who knows what's next in the next 20 minutes. A world in which there's crises minute to minute. In fact, that's how AM makes a living. Dog bites man is not news. Man bites dog is man. We call it in the world of journalism, sensationalism. News. My father, I grew up in the house of a journalist. I know a little bit about the newspaper business. It's a very interesting world, the newspaper world. So my grandfather used to mock my father. He would say to him that, you know, everything that says in a newspaper is a lie. Everything, even the date. It was printed yesterday. (laughs) He says, there's nothing you can trust. Absolutely nothing. So my brother once asked my father, he says, Tati, what are you going to do one day if there's no news? What if there's no news? Nothing happens. He says, that's going to be the news. (laughs) We always look. There's always news. If there's no news, that's news. But you're always looking for the crisis, for the disaster, for the catastrophe, for the drama. And the world is always about to be destroyed. Between traffic blocks, between accidents, between fatal accidents, between this problem and that problem, this sensation and this piece of dirt, AM is a world of tension. And every minute there's something else happening. Now shift over to FM. You know what FM is like? It's the same song playing already for 120 years. They don't stop. The world is not coming to an end. It's one long song that doesn't stop. Two types of souls. There are AM souls and there are FM souls. And when they're married to each other, it's very interesting. (laughs) The FM soul looks at the AM soul and says, why are you always stressed? And the AM soul looks at the FM soul and says, because I'm alive, because I'm present, because I don't have the luxury like you to live in the moon, to be detached, to be out for lunch, breakfast, and dinner, my dear darling. 
to live in his own cocoon and look at the world from a rosy place and think that kids grow up on their own after they're hatched. Which your husband, of course, loves hearing from you. How present you are and how detached he is. And the response is, and who pays the bills? <laughs> you say, if he could give that response, it's showing good. AM and FM, it's very different types. It's not always men and women. It works also with women. It works It's everybody. FM is a world of serenity. Transcendence, the music continues. AM is a world of words, FM is a world of song. AM is a world of differentiation, and FM is a world of aloofness, sublimity, more cohesion. Even when they talk about the news in FM, they speak very slow, you ever see? Right? It takes like, it takes an hour. It takes an hour to hear something on, on the other way. Oh, you see in the Neshama. Because even when they talk, they think they're singing. It's a very different reality. So now I ask you, which world should you live in? <laughs> should you live in the world of AM? Or should you live in the world of FM? Which world? The thing is, you can't choose either or. We live in both worlds. The skill is to be able to go from one to the other with the push of a button. That's the skill. To be able to say, it's time to go into FM now. And then to be able to say, it's time to go into AM. Essentially, that's what the Chazal mean when they say that by Simchas Beis HaShayeva on Sukkot, what did the greatest sages do all night? They juggled. It says, Reb Shimon ben Gamliel, was the Nasi of the Sanhedrin, he was considered the God Ladar, and he would stand all night and juggle eight torches. I want to know what would happen today if the so-called G'doylem of the generation would juggle. Huh? Would make news? Reb Shimon Gamliel juggled. And the Gemara says that a lot of the Tanoim and Amairoim, they used to juggle. This one juggled eggs. This one juggled wine. This one juggled fire. It's a whole sugya, Mesech sukkah. These are the greatest sages. Abaya, Levi, Reb Shemem and Gamliel. Really? So they were all jugglers. What's pshat? Besides the literal interpretation, there's a much deeper interpretation. To be a Jew means to learn how to juggle. And what do I mean by juggle? Not only juggle in terms of multitasking, a much deeper element of juggling. When you juggle... Anybody here juggles? You may want to learn it. One goes up. Very good. You got here through juggling, didn't you? And you're going to be living here. You're going to be leaving here and juggling again. And right now you're juggling as I'm talking. So let's think about this. You throw up the ball. But when you throw up the ball, there's one ball in your hand that's down. And as the other ball comes down, this one goes up. And so it continues. One ball always stays up. And one ball always stays down. But the one that stays up can't stay up forever. Got to come down and the other one goes up. And that's the process. We call it Ratzoy and Shoif. 
One part of you always has to be in FM. Always. One part stays up. One part remains in a world of wholesome serenity of the Yamsuf. And the other part remains downwards and it fluctuates. As Reb Meir Primishlana said, as when you connect it above, you don't fall below. So we have two worlds, the world of speech, the world of song, the world of Yabasha, the world of Yam. We have the Levyasan, is the fish, and we have the Shoir Habar. The Shoir Habar is all AM, confrontational, goring, horns, and the Levyasan is undercover in the ocean. It's a different type of relationship. One deals with a world of struggle, a world of crisis, a world of news, and one exists in the serene tranquil underworld, the covered world, the hidden world, which is under the water, the world of cohesiveness. And remember, fish never leave their source. Creatures of dry land leave their source. We all need the earth, but we don't stand on the earth all day. We can even sit on a plane for two days, quite far from the earth. What about a fish? If you tell a fish, come onto an airplane, come out of the water, a little vacation from your source, the fish says, that's death. Not only can't the fish be outside of water, the fish can't even be on top of the water. Fish has to be in the water. In other words, the fish, not only is it not separated from its source of life, it has to be submerged inside its source of life. Now what would that mean with a person? If our source of life is the earth, when a person is submerged in the earth, what does that mean? It's actually death. So understand what this means. What is life for man spells death for fish. What is life for fish spells death for man. Because the world of the sea is a world in which you're always in touch with the source of energy. And when you're in touch with the Ein Saif, the infinite source of energy, you don't emerge as a self-conscious being. And if you do, it spells death. Because the very definition of your life is you're an extension of the infinite energy of Hashem. But if we would go into that place, we would cease to exist as independent people. So therefore, even if we're on the earth, we're never inside the earth. The only time we go inside the earth is when we actually give up the ego and we revert back to our original source in the infinity. And hence, it's a completely different set of consciousness. For one, his life is the other's death. And one's death is the other's life. For the fish, if you tell the Jew who's a Levyasim, come out of the water, he doesn't even understand what it means. The very definition of I is that I'm in the water. You don't see me. The moment you see me, I can't live anymore. Because there's no me outside of the true me. And for the creature in the dry land, it's exactly the other way around. Self-consciousness is the name of the game. I, I, and I'm constantly struggling. Who am I? Where am I? What do I have to do today? What does she think of me? What do I think of myself? Am I a good mother? Am I an exceptional mother? Am I the worst mother who ever walked the face of this planet? We're processing ourselves constantly, trying to put ourselves into context, talking to ourselves about ourselves. Anybody does that here? Do you ever talk to yourself about yourself? Do you ever stop doing it? Never, right? Sometimes you got to become a fish. You got to become a fish. You have to stop talking to yourself about yourself. Because talking to yourself about yourself is the greatest obstacle to know who you are. Because 
you're looking for I. But the only time you really find I is when your I is submerged in the great I of the water. So the more I try to find the I, the more it runs away from me. And the more I have to substitute it for a different type of I. You want to know if I'm schizophrenic? That's what you thought. Oh, you didn't. Okay. First of all, between last week and this week, I went through a lot. She's asking me a contradiction to what I said last week. Since last week and this week, I probably spoke 129 times. Not 129, a lot of times. And lots of things happened. So therefore, what I said last week, I said last week. But I'll actually go back there for a moment. Last week, she says, I said, you got to look into yourself. Why did I say that? Ah, with Rabbi Weinreb. Ah. And suddenly now I'm saying, this whole obsession with the eye, is there a contradiction no, not at all, of course not. <laughs> I don't think so, at least. I don't think so, at least. The point that he was making last week is that sometimes you know best where you have to be. And nobody will know it as best as you. It's like somebody once told me about construction. You know when people build their houses and they surrender their home to architects, to kolomers, to designers, to world experts to contractors, and you come back a month later, you thought you had vacation, and everything they can do wrong, they did wrong. And at some point you realize that you illiterate, uneducated peasant, who knows nothing about not architecture, and not colors, and not design, you know exactly what looks good and what looks horrible. You know best. It's also true in many other areas. It's true sometimes with your children. Every expert tells you, this child, no, no. Sometimes mother knows best, and father knows best. Comes to your own future, your own destiny, you got to listen to the kishkes. You got to listen to the spitzenfinger gefil, to the instant. Shaduchim especially. Every chelema genius tells you, it's perfect for you. But I don't like the guy, it's perfect. You'll start liking him after you're dead, it's fine. Love develops. Love develops, you get married, you'll have grandkids. By the time you're 98, it won't matter anymore if you love him or not. You'll be such an oizgi klapta Hashem, you're making shever brachas every night and smiling to the mechotanista, and it's all good. You have to tell people to trust their instinct. This doesn't mean that we don't need feedback and we don't need advice and we can't get stuck. We could get stuck and that's when we need a different type of feedback. But people have emotions, <laughs> And they feel a lot of stuff. And often what you feel is very, very true. And you don't build a life that runs contrary to your emotions. If it doesn't sit well with you, it's not a good idea. If you know that you're dominated by some demon, okay, so you have to deal with that. That itself is part of self-awareness. I'm not talking about somebody who's gripped by fear, that they're scared to take a walk. They can't follow every emotion. But generally speaking, if something doesn't sit well with you, and you're a functional person, more or less, I should say. You have to go with it. That's what we were discussing last week. 
And we didn't back down from that. Because it's true. We don't back down from truth. We back down from falsehoods. This week we're discussing a deeper, a deeper idea. Yotofus Rebetzin. We're discussing a deeper idea. And that is that the very search for self ultimately undermines the discovery of self. Because the search for self has to happen in the sea. And it's happening in the dry land. You can't catch the fish in the garden. You got to go to the pond if you want to find the fish. There was a guy in Central Park. He was standing by the park, by the swings, with a net. And he was throwing out the net with the worms. That's one, that's two, and rolling it up. Guy comes over to him and says, Nebuch. And he says, when was the last time you had a meal, you know? A Manhattan businessman, a nice guy. He says, oh, it's been a long time. He says, I'm going for lunch. Why don't you come with me? Takes him to this beautiful restaurant. Treats him for lunch. Every conceivable type of wine. And the guy knew exactly what to order. You know, he didn't order the, the tilapia for $25. He ordered the chili and sea bath for $79.25. You know, whenever somebody else is paying... So, you know, you choose the right things on the menu when you're paying. You know, you choose French fries. <laughs> Greek salad, if you're really spoiled. But uh, somebody else is paying, you know, why not? So he eats up, and, the, you know, the bill comes. He this guy $600, but a deal, and he doesn't say a word, because he's crazy. At the end, the guy tries conversations, conversations. He's finished already. He says, uh, so what do you do there in Central Park? He says, oh, I, I catch fish, I catch fish. He says, so you stand there by the swings and you catch fish? He says, there's no water there. He says, it's fine, there's what to catch. So he says, uh, how many fish did you catch today? He says, you're the sixth. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, be careful of crazy people. They're more smart than you imagine. They're smarter than you imagine. I have to look for the fish in the right place. I look for the eye where it's not. I'm not going to find it. So now, let's go to the next step. Creation of the world. The second day, the third day, Hashem creates the Red Sea. Hashem tells the Red Sea, contract. He says, what? In 2,448 years, the Jews are going to come and you have to split. He says, I'm happy to sign the contract, but let me see a Jew. Let me see a Jew. He says, sure. The third day of creation, remember. So he takes the sea into what's called Heichel HaNashamas, the chamber of Jewish souls. The sea walks in, and it feels such a light. And it takes a look at one Jewish soul, may have been you over there, and it sees that it's a chelik elekami mal mamish, it's a piece of Hashem. And the sea says, for this soul, I'll split any day, any week, any year. For such souls, any time. No need. No need for conditions. For these souls, it senses the glory, the infinity, the holiness, the splendor, the light, the connection, the dveikus. The sea says, for these souls... You need me to split every day of my life? I'll split. I don't care. God says, great. History moves on. 2,000 years pass. 2,448 years pass. The Jews come out of Egypt. 
They leave the Egyptians, they leave the bondage, and they come to the Red Sea, and the Pasuk says in Bashala, they look to the back, and they see all the enemies pursuing them, they look in the front, and they see a sea. They're stuck between uh, the rock and the hardball. And they turn to Moshe and they say, you didn't have enough graves in Egypt to bury us, so you took us here to be buried. And Chazal say, the Mechilta says, they split up into four groups, which Jews always tend to do. One group said, let's commit suicide, let's jump into the sea. Like they did in Masada. Another group said, let's surrender. At least we'll live as slaves rather than die as free men. What do you choose, to live as a slave or to die as a free person? Let's live as slaves. Let's surrender. A third group said, let's fight. We'll lose, but let's go down standing. And a fourth group said, let's pray. And that's why if you analyze the psukim, Moshe speaks to the Jewish people and he says four different messages. People often don't realize he's speaking to four different groups. Because that's the talent of a, of a great leader, a great teacher. He could speak two paragraphs but he's speaking to different people, and everybody hears what they have to hear. Moshe tells the Jews, when they say, let's go back to Egypt, we're going to die, we should, we, we you just took us out here to kill us here, there's no hope here. So Moshe says, and I'm going to quote, Moshe says to the Jewish people, don't be afraid. Stand and watch God's salvation. Because you saw Egypt today, you'll never see them again. Hashem will fight for you, and you remain silent. Says the Mechilti, he was talking to four different groups. The group that said, let's jump into the sea, Moshe said, Hisyatsvu, stand, halt. The group that said, let's go back to Egypt, he said, you're never going back to Egypt again. The group that said, let's fight, Moshe said, Hashem will fight. And the group that said, let's daven, Moshe said, shh, So what is left? We don't jump into the sea. We don't surrender, we don't fight, and we don't daven. What do we do? What's left? What do we do? What's option five? The next pasuk is, Hashem says, let me tell you option five. Daber al Yisrael Your job is to journey, to travel. No, thank you, genius. There's a sea right here. Chabaychi can and go. That's the fourth. No, no, no. Hashem said, you know what your problems are? Your problem is you're trying to figure out how the process leads to the destination. That's none of your business. You have a destination. You see a destination? Go! Let me figure out the process. Everybody is busy trying to figure everything out. So this one says suicide. The only thing to do. This one says surrender. This one says fight. This one says pray. Sometimes Hashem says, I ask you not to fight, and I ask you also not to daven. There's a time to daven, and there's a time to travel. There's a time to daven, and there's a time to move. There's a time that you have to put on talus and fill in and open the sin. There's a time you have to take it off and move. I told you to go to Har Sinai. That's your destination. Move. How? None of your business. Don't try to figure out the process. Stop being so self-conscious about the process. You get involved in life. You start living. And if a sea has to split, it'll split. Let me take care of that. So Moshe speaks to all four groups. But imagine the chaos. Four million Jews. Do you know the chaos at one board meeting of a shul? 
That's one shul that has how much? 150 members, for heaven's sake. Imagine four million Jews together fighting. You know what it looked like? It was beyond chaos. So they're standing there killing each other. Suicide, war, surrender, prayer. Screaming at Moshe, screaming at Aaron. Hashem turns to the Yam Suf and says, My dear C, you remember we made a contract? It's time to split. The C takes a look and says, For whom? Hashem says, For the Jewish people. C takes a look and says, Sinish Dezel Beyidin. It's not the same Jews I saw there. Look at these guys. Depressed, angry, obnoxious, hungry, starving, mad, disintegrated, disjointed people. Politics, leave me alone. These are not the souls I saw. Trump said, we made a contract. He said, no, 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 no. That contract was with the soul up there. Not these guys. Grunty, what's the word? Disgruntled, dismantled, whatever it is, you get the point. Let me say it in Yiddish. Fahakt, sublogit, favundet, sabrachen, sublutikt, oizgemutchet, oizgematet, marischkeuredik, unach deprestoich. Yiddish always captures truth. I told somebody there's no curses like our grandmothers had in Yiddish. You should be like a leichter. So sein wie a leichter. Hängen bei Tag und brennen bei Nacht. Hang by day and burn at night. Alle zehn is al neus far is fallen von deinem oil. Chutz von divas tutvei. All your teeth should fall out of your mouth besides the one that hurts and kills you. The profession. I don't know how the Jews had time. I guess they had some time in the shtetl to come up with these curses for their enemies. It was their way of dealing with it. English doesn't come close to it. Anyway, the Yamsuf tells the Rebbeinu Shaloylam, there's a breach of contract. No, 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 no. You told me it's one person, it's a different type of person. And the Yamsuf refused to budge until it saw the casket of Yosef. Ah. Here, the Yam was humbled. Why? Because this was the story of Yosef. What was the story of Yosef? The Pasuk says, Yosef Yosef recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Why? So Rashi says, because he left them without a beard. He was 17. He was a young teenager. And now, he already had a beard. They didn't recognize him. They were adults. He recognized them. That's Rashi's Pshat. The Balatanya Disfasemes explain as follows. Much deeper. Yosef understood his brothers... The brothers never recognized the meaning. They never knew who he was. They never understood him. When they saw Yosef, they dismissed him as the black sheep of the family. Every family has a black sheep. He's, you know, the, the guy who doesn't fit in really to the real system. He's not the steiger, let's put it that way. He's not the steiging type. He's busy dreaming. He's going to take over the world. Agriculture, the sun, the moon. Everybody's bowing down to him. Eleven stars. Everybody's bowing down to him. All the sheaves are bowing down to him. He wants to take over the earth. He wants to take over the heaven. He would groom himself. He was good looking. He was handsome. He was creative. Come on. Yosef is not the real thing. And it wasn't easy for them. It was not easy for them. They dismissed Yosef as 
the child who's really betraying the covenant. And now they could deal with one boy who's a black sheep in the family, and you do what's called Kirov. The problem is that Yaakov loved him more than everybody. And he was the one who got the most attention. This, for them, was a very frightening prospect. When you looked at Yosef superficially, you could not see who Yosef was. In fact, some of them could even say about Yosef that he is the modern, so to speak, the modern, modern kid. He's not really the Jewish one. He's more, he has a secular bent. He's the closest thing to Judaism. That's what they could say about Yosef. What happens in reality? What happens in reality is Yehuda goes to Tamar, who's disguised as a Zaina. Yosef, who's entrenched in the depth of promiscuity, Erva Saaretz. He is the one who resists temptation and is the only one who's called Tzaddik, Yosef Tzaddik. And the Zoyar says because of the unique test that he had, because he saw the image of his father in the window, Dmuzdi Yoikno Shayakov Aviv. Miles away from his father, he still remained connected. Wearing the clothes of an Egyptian prime minister. Speaking the perfect language of the Egyptian. Running the economy of the superpower of the world. Yosef, completely entrenched in this world, remained absolutely one with Ein Saif, one with the Rebbein Shalal. Not disconnected. Completely one, in fact... He saw his mission as revealing godliness in the world, while his brothers felt the need to be shepherds. Because what does a shepherd do? A shepherd lives in isolation. A shepherd lives with nature. A shepherd pastures the sheep around water and grass. And a shepherd could be in a state of meditation and transcendence all day. Yosef was involved in the real world, and yet it did not cause any separation. Between him and his dvekas with Hashem, his heart was on fire with passion, with love, with intimacy. That was the uniqueness of Yosef. His brothers could not understand him. They looked at the outside. You have to have a chush to understand Yosef. You have to have a depth to understand Yosef. If your Judaism is based on one model and suddenly you see a new model, you say, this is not Judaism. And it happens in every generation, by the way. Sometimes there'll be a soul that comes down. Listen to what I'm telling you. You'll understand a lot of Jewish history. Sometimes they'll come down a soul into the Jewish world. And the soul is so powerful, is so great and is so holy, that he defies the boxes that we're accustomed to. So what do people do? If you're a deep soul and you get it, you're like, wow. And if not, what do you do? You turn Yosef into a villain. You have to. That's the only way you could contend with this reality. Because it's so big. And you can't deal with things that are so big. So what do you do? You make them small so that you could remain big in your own imagination. It's the great tragedy of often generations of Jews. They'll take the greatest gifts and turn those gifts into curses so that they could remain stuck and paralyzed in their comfort zone. Feeling proud of their achievements and closing themselves off to the gift that God has given them in the world. And sometimes it takes 50 or 100 years for the Jewish world to open their eyes and like, wow, what did we lose here? What did we do here? We raised a whole generation on indoctrination, on brainwashing, depriving them from such a gift. This happened to the Rambam, for example. The Rambam was a unique soul and he defied the regular structure. They burnt his books 
They burnt his books. Great rabbis burnt his books. Rabbeinu Yoyna wrote Shari Tshuva to do Tshuva for what he did for about the Rambam, what he did with the Rambam's books. Rabbeinu Yoyna. And the Jews of Yemen, the Jews of Yemen knew the Rambam. And when they would say Kaddish during his lifetime, they used to say, Bechayechoy, Uvyeimechoy, Uvechayi the Chol Beis Yisrael, Uvechayi the Rabbana Moshe ben Maimon, Ba'agol of his Mankarivim Ruamein. By the life of Rabbeinu Moshe ben Maimon. But in, in, in Western Europe, they burnt his books. The Rambam was deemed an apicurus, a kaifer, a heretic. Today, of course, the Rambam is the Rambam. The Rambam is the teacher of Kalal Yisrael. The Rambam is called the Great Eagle. Why is he called the Great Eagle? You know what the uniqueness of an eagle is? An eagle doesn't only have bird's eye view. An eagle has eagle eyes view. There are people who are very Jewish. There are people who are even scholars in Judaism. But they don't have a bird's eye view of Judaism. They're good in one field. They're good in one area. There's people who have the ability to rise, 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 rise higher to the point of an eagle. And they see all of reality as cohesive. The bird's eye view of the world, of Judaism, of God's plan. It's a different perspective. But if I want to stay down here and suddenly I look up and I see an eagle, what do I do? I take my arrow, I take my bow and arrow. And I say, you see that eagle? He's destroying the status quo. Shaita! He'll heal your generation. He'll give you perspective. Your kids are dying. Your students are dying. They're dehydrated. No, no, no. We don't do that. We kill our eagles. That's what they tried to do to Yosef. And they were good people. They were good people. They meant well. But Yaakov knew the truth. They throw him in a pit. That's the first thing you always do. You throw him in a pit and you hope the snakes take care of him. And when that doesn't work, you sell him into slavery. But true greatness you can't stifle. People who are pseudo-great, you put them in a pit, they die. People who are truly great, they rise from everywhere because they're really great. Their fire is inside, it's not outside. They don't need external validation to be who they are. So from nowhere, And now the sea is looking at the story of Yosef. And the sea says, Wow. At a moment of truth, Yosef fled. What did the sea discover? The sea discovered that the worst mistake you could make in life is look at things from outside in rather than from inside out. What the sea understood was, how would you feel? See, if I came to you and I looked at the ocean bed and I said, there's nothing under it. There's just water. How would the sea feel? How would the ocean feel? Humiliated. Really? There's nothing under me? Why don't you scuba dive a little bit? Why don't you go a little deeper? So when the sea came to a conclusion and said, these are Jewish souls that I met on the third day of creation, these are obnoxious, sedated, Mishagoyim politicians. The sea learned from Yosef, you have to understand an Ashama. You have to be able to go deeper. You have to be able to dig a little bit. And you have to be able to have the perspective, not only of words, but of music. When the sea saw Yosef, it split. It split completely. This is what caused it to split. Ah, if so, come Chazal and say, we're looking how to describe marriage. What's the best way to describe marriage? Kriyas Yamsov. You know why? I'll tell you why. 
Because 40 days before birth they announce, Bas Pliny, Le but before they announce, the girl, the soul of the young woman tells God, Can I see my. Can I see my future soulmate? Pajalis there with pleasure, go check him out. So she goes into Gan Eden and she takes a look and they point out, you see, he's the guy. And she sees the soul of her husband. She's like, wow, wow, how lucky I am. What a soul. What, what light. What beauty, what graciousness, what wisdom, what depth, what holiness. God says, you want? She says, for him, I'll do Kriya Syamsaf every day. I'll split my sea every day. She says, great. She's born to a wonderful Jewish family. Now forward the tape recorder of life. 19 years, 20 years, 22 years, 25 years, 30, whatever the years are, later. And suddenly, she meets this guy. Okay, one guy, another guy, what? Dating, courtship, however it works in your community. At some point, you get married, you break the glass, mazel tov, shine. Sheva brachas is over. She takes a look. She says, he ain't the guy. This is not the guy. Sorry. God, you sent me the wrong guy. And sometimes that's the theme of her conversations over the next 50, 60 years. The wrong guy. That one was filled with light. This one is filled with darkness. That one was selfless. This one is selfish. That one was giving. This one is narcissistic. That one was wise. This guy is dumb. That one had depth. This is as superficial as a piece of spaghetti, etc. This one was kind. This one is cruel. This one understood me. This one is clueless. This one had empathy. This one doesn't know what the word empathy means. You know, they say that there was a woman who was visited by a genie. What do they call it? A genie? One of those angels who says, you're such a good wife and you're such a good mother. I want to give you three rewards. You name three requests and you get them. So she says, request number one is that my husband should find me more interesting than anything else in the world. The angel looks at her and says, come on, you know your husband. What's Vilstud? It's asking for the impossible. Okay, what's your second request? My second request is, my husband should have eyes only for me. Nothing else in the world. Jesus says, you're going crazier from minute to minute. You know your husband, who he is. What's your third request? My third request is every single morning. Every single morning. He wakes up, before he does anything, he should just spend 45 minutes with me. Guy says, this is impossible. Your mama shouldn't say. She says, you promised, you promised. He says, okay, let me think about it. He comes back a few minutes and he says, you know what? I'm going to fulfill all of your three requests. And within a few seconds, she turned into an iPhone 7. (laughs) All three requests were fulfilled. And suddenly, the woman looks and she says, it's not what I saw up there. And sometimes, it goes the other way around. Sometimes. (laughs) The guy says, can I see my kala soul? God takes him to the kala soul. Azakala? Kriya Siamsuf, every moment for her. 
And then he comes down and he meets his soulmate. Bayar Baboiker, he wakes up in the morning and he goes, whoops! It's not Rachel, it's Leah. This is not what I saw. This is not what I saw. And this is where it becomes difficult. So when the Chazal had to describe this, what did they say? The art of matchmaking is as difficult as Kriyas Yamsov. The Yamsov didn't want to split. The Yamsov says this was a Mekach Tos, it's the wrong person. But the Yamsov was making a mistake. And the one who revealed the mistake to the Yamsov was Aroinoi Shal Yosef. It was the coffin of Yosef. What is the message that they're conveying here? Says the Helikud of Aaron Karliner. He says the message here is this. It's easy to look at a soul in heaven and become inspired. It's harder to look at a soul down here and become inspired. But in life, you have to have the courage not to get stuck in the superficial layers that each one of us has. And to remember that life is stressful. And often people have a difficult time becoming one with who they really are identifying their own greatness and their own beauty. When they once asked Michelangelo how he made that sculpture David. You ever saw his David? You know what he answered? Michelangelo answered, I didn't create it. I saw the angel trapped in the marble and I chiseled away on the marble and I set the angel free. And that's what a real marriage is. Each one of us is trapped. Each one of us has experiences of life that trap our angel inside. And in life I have to be able to cut people slack. To be able to always see the beauty to always be able to identify the greatness. Always understand that the greatness of a soul down here is that it struggles through setbacks and failures, through ups and downs, because it has to fight in order to achieve its greatness. And I'll always make my disclaimers, as I always do. This is not a kosher certificate sign to tolerate abuse and say, the angel is trapped in the marble. And the marble is abusive. And it'll abuse me and abuse me. And in 99 years, maybe the angel will be set free. That's not what I'm saying. I was the other day at a speech. And a woman came over to me. And says, Rabbi Jacob said, I need advice. I said, what's the advice? Advice is every day my husband screams at me. Hollers at me. He is physically violent with me. So I said, maybe it's time to consider... Separation. Maybe you have to make an ultimatum. If you don't really get help, it's not going to work. You have to protect yourself. So she looks at me and she says, you're probably right. So I said, no. She said, but who's going to take care of him if I do that? So I said, he'll have to learn to take care of himself or get his life into shape. You can't tolerate this. So she says, yeah, but he's a Talmud Chacham.
I said you're suffering from a very, very serious syndrome and you're the one who needs even more help than him. Because you're a horrible victim and you don't realize it. So she walked away from me. She ran away from me. I said, I'm sorry. If I can help you, you could call me. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in every relationship. There's an angel trapped in the marble. It's true with your spouse. It's true with each one of our children. It's true with ourselves. You have to cut yourself slack. And you have to never doubt the angel in the marble. And you have to realize that each of our husbands and each of our wives and each of us is fighting a battle. And it's a daily battle and it's a hard battle. Whether you're lucky enough to stay home or you're lucky enough to get out of the home. Whether you're lucky enough to have a good job or you're lucky, whatever it is. Everybody is fighting a battle. Everybody is fighting a battle. And the art in life is Kriyas Yamsuf. Don't just look at the top. Look what is deeper. And when you could split your sea, you could see things that you didn't see otherwise in yourself and in your loved one. Kashas Ivugum Kriyas Yamsuf. Ah, if this is the case, the Gemara says it's only about second marriages. The Medrash says it's about first marriages. How do we reconcile the two? Now open your hearts, this is deep Torah. Every marriage has two marriages. Nobody gets married once. Everybody gets married twice. Some people get married twice in a very practical way. They get married to two people. But even those who remain married to one person, also get married twice. Or at least they should get married twice. What does this mean? The first zivug is the mazel. Bashert! The second zivug is lefim aisov. Meaning, you get married, you take a 19-year-old baby and a 21-year-old bigger baby. I'm not going to say who's who, you'll figure it out. And you put them together and the two babies give each other bottles and they raise each other and then before they know it, they're already giving bottles to another baby. And you have three babies working out life. Before they know it, they're having grandchildren and then all the babies are busy raising each other and trying to learn about maturity. And life goes on. Baruch Hashem, the Ike is of Simchas. Shai. <laughs> now, that's it. That's Zivug Rishon. It's the Zivug of innocence. How did I end up with this guy? How did she end up with... Hazoi! Bashert! Why did the Shadchan choose this? Why? You know how it is, these things. Nobody even knows how it comes about. It comes about because God said it should come about 40 days before they were born. But at some point in life, you get older, you have to remarry. And that's a whole different type of marriage. It's Lefi Masim. Now you have to make it work based on your inner character. And for this, you have to split the sea. For this, you have to go to your unconscious self. If you're not going to go to your unconscious self, you won't be able to work, make it work. Because the incompatibility of people is very common. And the distortions that we project on each other's life is very common. And especially comments that we hear throughout our marriages that often plant seeds about our spouses that turn people into villains when they're not. And wives create images about their husbands. And all husbands create images about their wives that work for them. And they build on it. And they build on it for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And they never get out of it. But you have to get married again. But this marriage has to be a different marriage. It can be based on the mazel. It can be based on the shatchen. It can be based on a baskel. For this you have to do kriyas yamsuf. This is the zivuk sheni in every marriage. 
People who get married a second time, they know exactly what this means. Because it's a whole different type of marriage the second time around. But even people who get married one time around, to remain really married, you have to marry a second time. And I don't mean what we call in English, renew our vows, which is also sometimes the way to do it. Especially if you could spend three weeks in Florida, it's not a bad idea to do a zivuk sheni over there. And just eat carrot soup every night or whatever it is. If you can make him uh, carrot soup and kale juice, that would be wonderful. That's called zivuk sheni. Drink some almond milk, some tofu, some barley kernels, and create a new marriage with some Bach in the background. Okay, Shreki if you want. But uh, what we're talking zivuk sheni is very deep. For this, I have to open up my yamsuf. Oy, 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 oy. I have to excavate. I have to go into my depth and say what things look like. They don't, they're not necessarily what they look like. It's a whole different experience. I may have to challenge every assumption. And I may have to become very vulnerable about my deepest fears and concerns and needs. And I may have to articulate to my spouse things that I never did about who I am and who I think they are, and who I want them to be. And that's Kriyas Yamsuf. You have to go into a space that's hidden. It was covered by the water all these years. And you have to go into that space, and people are very afraid to go there, because they're afraid their marriage is going to get destroyed. Because she shall find out who I am, she'll never look at me again. He'll find out who I am, he'll never look at me again. But for this you have to know that it's really the other way around. The deeper you go, the more innocence you'll find. This was the big difference between Freud and Alter Rebbe. Freud said, the deeper you go, the more craziness you'll find. The Baal Shem Tev taught, the Balatanya taught, Reb Nachman, the Baal all the Talmudia Baal Shem Tev taught, the deeper you go, the more innocence you'll find. Yes, you're going to come across mud, but if you go mamish, mamish deep, you'll find pearls, you'll find diamonds. Freud believed it was the it, the ego and the superego. And the id is basically the crazy uninhibited monkey at the core. And then you have the superimposed layers of the ego and the superego. And neurosis, neurosis is created from the tension between the three layers. And Freud was right about the id. The id is very, very heavy, very loaded, very crazy, completely uninhibited. Wants to do whatever it wants, with whomever it wants, however it wants, whenever it wants. But Freud dug deep. Sigmund Freud dug deep. And when you dig deep, you find mud. But the Baal Shem Tev, especially the Balatanya and Estanya, they dug even deeper. And when you dig even deeper, you find diamonds. So Freud discovered the Id. But if he would have dug a little deeper, he would have discovered the Yid. What was missing was the Yud, the Y, that one letter, the Yud. And who is represented to Freud decipher dreams. There was another person who interpreted dreams. His name was Yosef. Yosef is made up of four letters, Yud, Vav, Samach, Fei. Samach, Fei is the acronym of Sigmund Freud. <laughs> but what was Sigmund Freud missing? He was missing the first letter. The first two letters, Yud and Vav. Those are Hashem's name. That's the Yid. The Yud beneath the Id. Deeper than the Yid, you find the Yid. And when the Yam saw Yosef, Vayonos, it's split. So for your zivuk sheni, you have to do sometimes kriyas yamsuf to be able to discover that component. And then you'll find an innocence that you didn't even imagine was there. Because sometimes you have to go through your broken places to find your wholesome places. As one Jew said, 
Forget the perfect offerings, they don't exist. Amachaya. They came to listen, they came to listen to the Shia, relax. They came to listen. They're also busy dating. They want to hear what to, how to do it. Kriyas Yamsov. These are lovebirds. Taibalach. Talking about bird's eye view, eagle views. They, they, they're, they're, they're part of it. I mean, I don't understand the language of birds, but if anybody does, you probably hear what they're saying, no? You understand? So, they're singing, yeah. What was I just saying? Oh, so uh, so a Jew once said a famous song, when I was young, I worshipped perfection. Now that I'm older, I search for things that have cracks inside of them. Because it's the cracks that allow the light to enter. So I have to crack open my yamsuf, my invincibility. I have to create cracks. It's very vulnerable, but that's where you'll find the light. When there's no cracks, the light don't, never comes in. It's perfect. Too perfect for the light. When there's cracks, the light comes in. So that's why the Gemara says that Parnas is also like Kriyas Yamsuf. Why? Because Chazal tell us, of It says in Beitzah, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, Hashem decides everybody's Parnasa. What do Jews look like between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Everybody is busy being holy. <laughs> Everybody is pure. Everybody does tshuva. Everybody comes to shuvah. It's Shani and Kippur. People are looking for schusim. They're, they're busy. It's like bargaining chips. You do this and you'll make God smile. Whatever it is, the whole culture. So God decides. Parnasa. Every Jew is so beautiful, so perfect. Shani and Kippur. They're so holy. The decision is based on that. Now comes the middle of Shvat. It's a cold winter day. It's raining outside. The guy shows up at work. And the angel in charge on the Parnassa is about to write out a check to put it in his bank account. He turns to God and he says, there's a misunderstanding here. It's not the Jew from Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. It's a different Jew. Look at this guy. Look at this guy. He wasn't the same Jew in Kippur. So we say it's Kriyas Yamsov. Don't look at people superficially. Don't get distracted by the fact that people have so many distractions. You don't get distracted by their distractions. The challenge is not that people have distractions. The challenge is that we get distracted by their distractions. Never get distracted by people's distractions. You have to always remember that there's a part that's deeper than distractions. And as long as you're focused on that, you'll be able to help them focus on that. Kriya Syamsev understood that. Don't judge him superficially. Don't judge him superficially. So the Mizoynis, the Parnasa, also requires the art of Kriya Syamsev. So therefore, when Chazal wanted to define what a Shidduch is, Zivuk Sheni, but Zivuk Sheni even in a first marriage, that's the reconciliation between the two sources. They said it's Koshim Kikriyas Yamsov. It's that ability to be able to stand in front of a person, especially a person that you're close with and a person you connect to life with, and see the angel in the marble. 
and never move your eyesight away from the angel in the marble. This is true with your child, it's true with your student, it's true with everyone you come in contact with, and it's true with yourself. And then just chisel away on the marble and set the angel free. Have a wonderful week. The Yeshiva.net.